Hello and welcome to Plot Trip. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing A Caribbean Heiress in Paris by Adriana Herrera. This was just published in 2022 and is the first in the Las Leonas series. And full disclosure, we did receive a complimentary copy for review. All right. Should we should we read the jacket and then get in? I feel like we have a lot a lot to say about this book. Sure. So let's read the book jacket. Paris, 1889. The Exposition Universelle is underway, drawing merchants from every corner of the globe, including Luce Alana Haysbenson, heiress to the Kanya Brava rum empire. Luz Alana set sail from Santo Domingo, armed with 300 casks of rum, her two best friends, and one simple rule. Under no circumstances is she to fall in love. In the City of Lights, she intends to expand the rum business her family built over three generations. But buyers and shippers alike can't imagine doing business with a woman. Never mind a woman of color. This, paired with being denied access to her inheritance unless she marries, leaves the heiress in a very precarious position. Enter James Evanston Sinclair, Earl of Darnick, who has spent a decade looking for purpose outside of his father's dirty money and dirtier dealings. Ignoring his title, he's built a whiskey brand that's his biggest and only passion. That is, until he's confronted with a Spanish-speaking force of nature who turns his life upside down. From their first tempestuous meeting, Luz Alana is conflicted. Why is this titled and infuriatingly charming Scottish man so determined to help her? For Evan, every day with Luz Alana makes him yearn for more than her ardent kisses or the marriage of convenience that might save them both. But Lucilana sailed for Paris, prepared to build her business and her future. What she wasn't prepared for was love finding her. I think it's interesting that they chose to use Exposition Universal uh-huh. when World's Fair is way more common to an English-speaking yeah. audience. Yes, <laughs> this is true. Just saying, like, so if you're wondering what they're talking about, if this is like a historically accurate event, yes, they're talking about the Paris World's Fair, which the Eiffel Tower was built for. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Which I feel like most people know that. Yeah. This is... This is okay. I, I feel like it leans hard for some reason on Lucilana not falling in love, which I don't really understand. The rest of it, I think, is a pretty good book jacket. Yeah, they have a little bit of a conversation by they, I mean, she and her friends on the boat on the way over about how Luzalana needs to be focused on the business and not on dudes because dudes are a distraction. And as we've talked about a lot, women sign over their property to their husbands. So obviously her like stake in her company, which is her driving force, would be compromised if she were to marry. Um, And she's also 28, which as historical uh, romance readers know, is like fucking dead. It's so old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's got cobwebs in her hair she's yeah, a crib keeper basically okay I, I don't know that they're in her hair but yeah <laughs> I was trying to be you know <laughs> classy Maybe yes, classy is the word <laughs> um yeah so I, I, I guess I, I don't think it's 
her raison d'etre or anything. Like, I don't think I will not marry is what's driving her in any capacity. So I agree with you there, but it is like mentioned in passing that she doesn't see the benefit of a husband. Yeah. I feel like this is a slightly long book jacket. So, Oh, it's way too long. I don't, I think they could have cut that part out. Right. Also like, it's even things like, okay, the brand name of her rum. Yeah. I know those are little nitpicky things, but like ultimately that's how you get a book jacket to be memorable, short, and like pithy and to the point is by cutting out those details that you'll gain in the text, but don't really tell you a lot about the point of the book. Yeah. Props to this book for leaning into this book jacket for leaning into the racial disparity between the main couple. I feel like a lot of times that gets glossed over. Yeah. Like I do feel like the, like what is important about this book is here. Yes. It just could have been edited a little bit. Yeah, I you know what? I agree with you. I, I don't think it's a bad book jacket or anything like that, but it's a little too long, a little too wordy. And of course, because it's too wordy, the random number we generated for this week's episode was 43. So we also had a lot to work with. So as usual, we wrote our own summaries using that randomly generated number as a word count. Mm-hmm. I'll start. Thank goodness the person you want to have sex with real bad also needs to get married to solve their business difficulties and is destined to live in Scotland and had family ties to a nation halfway around the world. Love is easy. I mean, yes. I I, I love me a romance novel with a lot of coincidence. So I didn't hate that part. I'm going to be honest. Not stating that as a complaint. It was great. I loved it. It's just for a book about these two people who both have ambitions that marriage does not support, who both believe they would never get married or had some sort of fundamental opposition to it. Um, the conflict was not about their class difference or their racial disparity or any issues with their business. It's about one evil dude who's kind of crazy. And that was, that's what made me want to shake everyone. Yeah. And by everyone, I mean the author. Yeah, that's fair. All right, here's mine. If you're looking for a good recipe for a hot scot and an ethical heiress, mix a shot of whiskey, two shots of rum, some medicinal herbs, and a little black girl magic. You just might come up with Evan and Lusalana. Okay. I'm just going to get to tropes and jump to a late one that is not the central trope of the book. Okay. Um, so I put in tropes, Chekhov's gun doesn't fire. Mm-hmm. And there is a literal gun strapped to her thigh that is never used. Yes. But the other Chekhov's gun that never fires, and this is what ties into your summary, is she has this medicinal rum that she won't let anyone taste. Right. And I thought for sure that, like, the moment Evan first tasted it or, like, someone first tasted it was going to be really significant in the text because it's brought up so many times. And that also never happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of representative of some of my frustrations with this book is I feel like there was so much set up and in some ways so little payoff, especially yeah. on what was set up. So, okay, one of the things I really did like about this book is that Adriana Herrera knows her romance tropes and yes. she really worked them in so we have a scottish nobleman right he's this hot scott guy with a beard and a brogue like hello and there's a scene with a kill oh my god like like hello thank you yes yes 
<laughs> there, the big trope, well, one of the big tropes is marriage of convenience. Yes. Because she's got to get married for her inheritance. He's also got to get married for his inheritance. It's a different thing, but basically. I would say the number one trope is like inheritance will drama. Yes. Because for, they both have it in different areas, and that is what prompts the marriage of convenience and what yes. prompts a lot of the other tropes. So the like sticky wickets of legal inheritance is, is the big thing, working behind yes. the scenes for both of them. Inheritance shenanigans. And it, his inheritance shenanigans are really interesting um, because they, they deal with something that Lane and I have talked about on many occasions in the past, which is how do you get a nobleman who is not a nobleman? Is he the heir or is he not the heir? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. But I will say the solution this book comes up with to navigate those aristocratic ties is legally sound. It's legally sound. I, I really liked it too, actually. Same. And I, I liked the minimal angst about it as well. Yes. Especially because, like, basically, uh, I, this is not a spoiler, really, to say Evan was supposed to be a second son. Mm-hmm. His older brother died. So for him to realize his status is back to being that of the spare is not actually, like, a crisis for him. Right. That's what he always expected. So the fact that it's the new reality, again, is like, okay, cool. It's not that he's illegitimate. Yes. Um, one final trope before we move on, uh, she's the daughter who wants to take over the family business, but was passed over. Yep. And I, I will add one more. His ex is a plot device. Yeah. Specifically so in who she chose to marry next. Yeah. So let's take a back, a step back really quickly and talk about the, is he really the heir and all this stuff? Because... I I really, really, really liked how she wove it in, um, how it was working. And uh, it was one of the parts of the book that I thought succeeded the most for me. Definitely, except for his relationship with the new heir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So it's revealed extremely early in the text. So this is a spoiler for like the first three chapters. Yes. So are you going on or? I was going to let you. Oh. I wanted to be like be explicit about what we're spoiling. Yes. So there, there's, a, there's a slight spoiler. So um, the heir is the son of his father's first marriage who was never acknowledged and in fact was left for dead. Yes. Um, and the heir happens to also be a person of color. And they have paperwork. Mm-hmm. And by they, I mean the new heir and Evan have spent time accumulating evidence of the father's duplicity, original marriages, birth of the children. Like, the, the ducks are all in a row by the time I, they go public. Yes. And I just, I just really, really liked how Herrera worked with the inheritance shenanigans, which many an author that we have read and liked Kind of messes up sometimes. Yep. Um, so she had all that inheritance stuff correct, like done well. She also started 
like really delving into the British aristocracy's relationship with slavery and colonialism, uh, where their wealth was built. All of these things I thought were really good. I really liked it. Definitely. Um, Okay. I think you described this book to me as Bridgerton, if Bridgerton, like the TV show, not the books, had done like the research to actually fully flesh out. Yep. A United Colors of Benetton Society without just pasting it in without explanation. And I completely agree with you. Like, yeah. this is that like multicultural cast in a way that feels like it could fit within history. Like, of course, it, it's not the historical narrative, but it fits within the historical narrative and doesn't blind cast. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't blind cast. And I mean, the cast of characters, speaking of the cast, is uh, there are a ton of women of color, men of color, there are queer characters. And it doesn't, to me, it did not feel like she was, you know, just throwing these people in there to be, you know, here's a queer character. Here's a uh, character of color. Like these people really could have existed in the time period. And I liked that a lot. Agree. Okay. That said, I think both of us wanted to like this book more than we ended up really liking it. The ideas that Adriana Herrera works with are great. And I liked the main couple. Yeah, they're a great couple. And it was sexy. High point of the book. So you may be wondering, like, okay, those are typically all the things you love. I want to be clear, I liked this book. Mm-hmm. Based on all of those details, I expected to love this book. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into the things we love in detail later on, but I think the two things that really hurt this book for me is this, because it's this multicultural cast of characters done in a historically believable way, so much of the book and their backstories is exposition. Yes. From her family history four generations back to his family's building of wealth through the subjugation of people, specifically people of color in the colonies, And it just was too much in page after page after page that it felt like reading a exposition, a academic textbook at times when you're in those sections more than a romance novel. Yeah. This is something I think we talked about with uh, some of Beverly Jenkins books as well, where it's, it's not that the history is bad. No. it, or anything like that. It just sometimes doesn't feel like you're reading fiction. It feels like you're reading a book report. A hundred percent. And I feel like this is somewhere where some historical romance authors could benefit from reading a little bit of science fiction or fantasy because those in those worlds, you have to have some coherent world building. You have to have that background, but it has to be woven in you can't read a good fantasy and have three chapters be exposition because people are not going to read it. Right. And I think historical romance as a genre in general gets away with not doing world building because readers of historical romance are so used to the Edwardian era or the Regency or so it kind of gets away with not doing a whole lot of that as a genre, depending on the author. 
And so it's, it's, it's notable when an author tries to do it. And it's also not something I necessarily am prepared to read. Yes. I feel like a most many historical romances are set in a world where we they don't need to do the world building because the world building has already been done for them by previous historical romance authors. So yeah, I feel like when you read historical romance, you know what being ruined is, you know what the ton is, you know what Almex is. These are all things that have been established for you as genre conventions. And when you step outside of that, I think people are ready to read it but it needs to be woven in more organically. Yeah, and the other was the number one thing, of course, in their, like, contract for their marriage of convenience was like, okay, and we don't lie to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and there were several, several times in the book where he was like, okay, but I'm just going to keep this one thing from her. And then another secret would come out. And then he'd be like, no, I've told you everything now. And he was, no, he's not saying the one thing. It was just like, that was the whole conflict was all of the secrets he was perpetually keeping from her. And here's the thing. They knew each other for 24 hours before realizing that a marriage of convenience would be mutually beneficial. So I, I'm like, I'm okay if they don't know everything about each other. But to make like such a big deal out of this pledge that there's complete honesty and transparency that conflict would have been fine if that pledge hadn't been there if it had just been like look these things hadn't come up but to make a big deal out of promise you told me everything yeah it was just really frustrating because every time he was like yes i've told you everything in the back of his head is like except this one thing and and, i mean you as a reader you're you get really frustrated with him too and you're like of course lucilana is annoyed at him you know and it wasn't just one time. Like, I would be very clear. Right. If it was one time, if he was like, I promise I won't keep anything from you. And then this one thing, because he does have this big secret that he's keeping. And I totally understand why he's keeping the secret. Like, I get it. I wasn't upset with him for that reason. I was upset for, for him, with him for saying, look, I, I will tell you everything that I can tell you. Right. You know? Anyway. Very annoying. Okay, the one thing I wanted more of was I wanted more of Paris. Well, I was the book is called A Caribbean Heiress in Paris. I would say I was promised an heiress in Paris, <laughs> but for half the book, they're in Scotland. <laughs> more than, and to be honest, like a lot of the Paris stuff gets really glossed over. Yeah, it does. But, spoiler alert for sexiness, there's one scene on top of the Eiffel Tower that I'm just like, pull my Paris fix is in. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to be, I'm going to also fully disclose to you that part of the reason I was so excited about reading this book is that I wrote my master's thesis on a book called Claire Solange, Am Africaine, Claire Solange, African Soul, which is a book about a Caribbean heiress who is French. Um, she, it, her father is white and her mother was biracial. And they met at the World's Fair. So I was predisposed to be extremely interested in this book. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So I I was, I don't want to say that I wanted to read Claire Solange because I didn't want to read that book. That's not, like, I've already read it. Like, I translated it. That was what I did for three years. Um, But I, I, it's a totally legitimate thing, you know? So I, I really liked 
that this book was using some of those same tropes. Um, anyway, the, the book that, that I am talking about was written in the 1920s. So in case you're wondering, <laughs> my translation has not been published. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to talk about the quality or? I mean, I think I just want to underscore that both of these characters were really complex and really likable. And I loved that they were on equal footing in this marriage of convenience. Yeah. And I loved that they were both open to the idea that this was just a marriage of convenience while simultaneously being really hot for each other. Mm -hmm. I loved her agency over her own sexuality. I loved like a lot of what the main couple of this book, the people they were and the way they interacted really worked for me. I loved the female friendships. Uh, yeah. Agreed. And the complexly developed background characters. Like there was a lot here that worked for me and I am, I think in some ways more excited for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think where this book fell short was that it wasn't very good at integrating the exposition and the context into the plot. And because of that, the characters fell short in some ways and the need to have like a big villain and then a whoops fake out secondary villain mm -hmm. actually wasn't necessary. And I felt like detracted from the text, but yeah. so there's, there's a lot of really good foundation here. Yes, I agree. There's a ton of good foundation. Um, I, I feel like we do need more historical romance like this that engages yes. with race and class and sexuality in this way. And I, I think there's a whole genre out there for it. And I am excited for the rest of the series. And I will, like, you know, she's a woman of color as articulated in the jacket and he is a white boy, but he has people of color in his family not just the brother that was aforementioned in this episode, but other cousins and whatnot. And so I feel like I was grateful she didn't have to educate him. Yes. On some level, like, obviously he doesn't have the lived experience and he learns from her lived experience, especially as a woman in these times and contexts. But there was uh, several points in the book where she expected him to react one way. And because of his lived experience, he reacted differently in a way that she found much more promising and, and less like, I have to teach him to change the way he sees the world. And I really, that was like, I understood why this woman was able to find this man attractive, but like he in no way, shape or form needed to like start from square one with her. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those things really did work. Yep. And I mean, you understood why she kind of attractive, like more than just being a hot Scotsman with a brogue and a, you know, beard and a kilt and stuff. Yes. Cause that was all there too. Also, I guess there's sort of a gentleman Jackson because he carries around, you know, whiskey barrels. Okay. Look, I'm into it. Content warning. Um, yeah. So he's got one of those father abuse the mother situations. Yes. And abuse the kids situations. I don't think it's particularly bad by historical romance standards. No, I don't think it is. But um, worth noting. Worth noting. And then also, you know, we've already talked about it, but the book engages with race and sexuality, which means it also engages with racism and classism and homophobia in some ways. Yes. So be aware of that. Okay. 
sexiness. Uh-huh. This book is so hot. Oh, my God. There was only one sex scene in this book that I was like, okay. The rest of them were great. <laughs> um, if you've ever fantasized about a nighttime tryst on the observation deck of the Eiffel Tower, you know, this will check off the box for you. And even if you haven't uh, fantasized about that, uh, why? <laughs> like, fix that about yourself. Really look yeah. inward to figure out why that's never <laughs> flown across your radar. Uh, yeah. He goes down on her so many times. Uh-huh. And I feel like, I forget the last author we've said this about, but I think I'm beginning to appreciate romance novels, novelists, who don't view the first orgasm the woman has as the point at which you fade to black. Nope. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times I'll be like, okay, we did the sexy scene, she came, and now I can be like, and they woke up three more times that night. No, no, no. no. You can put it all in there. It can all be in there. And Evan makes sure it is. I mean, Scottish dudes. There's a scene where he goes down on her, and she's like, I am ready to have sex now. And he was not expecting that, so he's like, okay, I better go down on you again. (laughs) Like, make sure you're that I know where this is heading. Yes. Even though literally 30 seconds have passed. And I'm just like, this is what I'm here for. Yeah. That is exactly what I wanted from this scene. Um, the one scene that I was like, mm, seriously, is the one time she gives him a blowjob. And she doesn't cry, and she's not, like, choking. So it's not, like, upsetting. Yeah. They're just like, ugh. Like, blowjobs can be sexy when they're just there as long as the woman's not crying. But I feel like this is like maybe I'm just never gonna be happy. But I feel like this goes a little too far into the like she felt so much power on her knees, and it's like once you're in like a reciprocal sexual relationship, just like who do you think it was fun? She liked that she could. It didn't. It doesn't need to be this like profound spiritual experience just because you're choking on a stick. <laughs> We're not choking because we hate. Uh, but it was fine. It was. Just, I was a little like laughing at like how like physical pleasure centric him going down on her was. Yes. And yes. how, like, she is so fulfilled by this. Her going down on him was. I was like, I mean, okay. It, like, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I do think it's interesting the way that you just talked about it is that, like, this is all, this is really all for Lucilana. So even his blowjob is about Lucilana. That's fair. Um, also, I, look, I'm just going to be honest. I, I don't know how historically accurate this is or how accurate at all it is, but Basically, he takes care of all the birth control. I fucking died at this. I literally made the decision not to Google it. Uh Uh-uh. I'm not Googling it. I don't want to know that it doesn't work, but I don't care. I was like, yes, basically he takes male birth control pills, and I I loved it. Fucking loved it. The other thing I actually thought was really interesting is they make a point to say they don't want children, not because it's a marriage of convenience, Mm -hmm. but because they both are so focused on their business. She's raising a 10-year-old sister. Um, like he, even though she, and he's obviously at the beginning of the book, the heir to the dukedom. So she's very deliberate. Like, I'm not having your children, not from a standpoint of this marriage is like of convenience, but from the standpoint of, I don't want kids. Yeah. And that doesn't change. Yeah. And I will say that now, just because if they've got kids in the background of a future book, I'm going to be pissed. Ooh. All right. We're going to, we'll find out. We'll see what happens. Cause we, I mean, we're for sure continuing with this here. Oh, Absolutely. So we'll see what happens, guys. But I just like, I really like not only was birth control in the text, but not in the middle of coitus. So yeah. not like in a way that could fail. No, no, exactly. It was oh. like, I'm on the male pill. 
and you're just like cool so there's no like oh i forgot to put it on or whatever yep um, yep exactly but i'm just i love the way they talked honestly about their family goals and they were aligned and their family planning goals and it had nothing to do with their like haphazard marriage yeah, so well, and it also had nothing to do with, like, I've never wanted to be a dad or I've never wanted to be a mom. It was really just, like, it's not going to work for us. Yeah, like, we have other priorities and we have a 10-year-old we're raising. I loved it. So th- there were a, a lot of things I really loved about this book. And, and is this her first book? It's, it's her first historical. She's written a lot okay. of, like, male-male contemporaries, actually. It didn't, it wasn't sloppy writing. I don't mean that as an insult. Like, I, it didn't read, like, a first book, but I definitely, like I said, like, I'm looking forward to reading subsequent books in the series, assuming they will get cleaner as the series goes on. Agreed. I agree with you. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and check us out around the internet at Plotris. That includes WordPress, Goodreads, and Instagram.